Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Just wanted to briefly mention before starting the episode that the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Eagle Eye Power Solutions. However, we do appreciate the different sides of the argument that will be expressed about electrical vehicles and the impact on the power industry. Welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the timely topic of electric vehicles. And this is something I know a lot of people in the industry have a, have a pretty strong opinion about one way or the other. We're going to get a couple different perspectives today. We'll start by talking to you guys, George and Alan. What do you guys think about the topic of electric vehicles and how is that going to impact our grid and basically the future of our electrical system? I'll lead off. I guess I'm one of the others. I'm not a big fan of electric vehicles during this conversation, but probably hit on some of the reasons I'm not. They're with us whether we like it or not. There's a lot of greenwash, what I call greenwash out there. There's a lot of half-truths. There's a lot of things the utilities maybe are not really telling us. What you come out with uh, depends who you work for. seems all we read about in the uh, newspapers and covered by the media is how it's going to save the earth with respect to lower emissions, non-carbon footprint producing, all these catchphrases. But when you really look at it very closely, as I have, not because I want to buy an electric vehicle, you probably have to give me one, but you look at it very closely, which I've done from a just to educate myself and to talk to some of my children of why they shouldn't do that. We'll cover that as well. I'm the negative side of the battery here. Maybe Joyce has a positive side. I'm always positive. I don't totally agree with this. It's one occasion that we will have a difference of opinion, probably in part because I've been involved in the concepts of uh, wind and solar for a long time. Uh, at one point in my career, I helped write a study on the use of small hybrid systems in third world countries to improve medical assistance. We did the study for one of the, myself and some colleagues did the study for one of the large oil companies uh, at the time. So I don't believe it to the extent that some other people do. No, it's not the answer to everything, but it is a contribution. I'm the same way with electric vehicles. Everybody thinks that electric vehicles have only just come. You know, this is the latest thing. But in fact, they've been actually been around a long time. They just didn't have lithium batteries in them, which is probably my biggest concern about electric vehicles. But I go back to my, my childhood. I was you know, brought up on the other side of the pond. And there, believe it or not, we all used to get our milk delivered. Every day, you put your empty milk bottles out on the, the step, and the milkman came along and he replaced them with full milk bottles. And you took them in when you woke up because they did it early in the morning. And when I, you know, I used to go to my, my grandparents' house outside Glasgow, the milkman was basically a, a cart and a horse. And they went, uh, they went up and down. That was nice and quiet. The horses got replaced by these little electric vehicles that came along. And they had to be electric because people would not want, did not want to hear cars. You know, you didn't hear cars in the mornings. In those days, and I remember my grandfather being extremely upset about electric vehicles, as were many other people in the street, because he relied on the horses to keep his garden fertilized. 
You didn't need a, a cleaning crew to come round after the people who lived in that street. Believe me, they were out there with their shovels. They were just waiting for the horse. That was the, that was the way it worked. But the point is that you know, and even in those days, people became against electric vehicles. <laughs> so that there is, I think, there's a natural reluctance to change as part of this. So those carts were very, very successful. They were nice and quiet. They didn't disturb the neighbourhoods. The problem we have is that people are either one extreme or the other. We don't seem to have much middle road today. Wind energy, solar energy, it's a supplement. The, the biggest stress on the electrical grid is during the day, typically on the height of a, of, a, of a warm summer's day. And if we're lucky that we don't have too much pollution in the air, obliterating the, the sunlight, solar panels help supplement that power level. It's just got to be carefully managed. No, George, but I was just having a quiet chuckle there. I had in my mind a picture of these people following the horse and cart with shovels. I guess the modern equivalent of that would be that people with uh, marshmallows and s'mores following the electric vehicles, waiting for them to catch on fire. That's only because you've got these damn lithium batteries in them. Let's talk a little bit about the batteries. vast majority are lithium. I'm not a big fan. In actual fact, at one of the initial BATCONs, I was chairing the conference and we had several questions about lithium batteries. This is back in the infancy. People were saying, well, how long is it going to be before we get lithium batteries into the telecom space or into the data processing space? So I said, not in my lifetime. I'm getting a little bit worried, but I think I've still got a few more years. The nice thing about the electric vehicle battery application is that it's encouraged a lot of research, a lot of money being thrown at developing uh, batteries initially as lithium. I think people are starting to look in different directions at the moment because of some of the sometimes deserved, sometimes not deserved problems with lithium batteries going into what I call spontaneous disassembly. In other words, either catching on fire or other nasty things. Didn't we just have a whole fleet of cars recalled because of battery problems? So what's driving this quest for a safer battery? Of course, that battery has to be smaller. It has to be lighter. It has to be cheaper. Where did we hear that before, George? I think we heard it in, when they were coming out with valve-regulated lead-acid batteries. It was a whole market-driven thing. Customers wanted something smaller, something lighter, something cheaper. So they come out with a valve-regulated lead-acid battery. That caused a hell of a lot of problems, and it took about 10 years uh, to sort out some of those problems. But the one good thing about electric vehicles is putting a lot of money into battery research. A lot of our money, in other words, government money, a lot of uh, venture capital money. I think we're going to see some changes. Sorry, lithium uh, manufacturers, but I think we're going to see some changes away from. Let, let me go back. To, George, you, you talked about the early electric vehicles. I can quote the post office as another example. You know, a lot of their fleet vehicles are all electric powered. What's caused the sudden surge? in the need for electric vehicles. It's uh, environmentalists on the environment, uh, a lot of which I agree with. People weren't clamoring for electric vehicles. I didn't sit, sit down someday in the pub and said to, say to George, hey, George, you know what? I think I'll get an electric vehicle. And George would have probably said, you're nuts. But anyway, uh, it's, it's been driven by outside forces, not the consumer. It's been driven by environmentalists. It's been driven by the government. For instance, a good example is that early on in the uh, Obama administration, they mandated that 50% uh, of the automobile fleet by, I think it was 2030, has got to be electric vehicles. Everybody say, yeah, this is great, but it's just not doable. The last estimates I saw, 
at the very best, probably 30% by uh, 2030 of vehicles may be electric. So these goals are set but with, with no consideration of technology, with no uh, consideration of public acceptance. So here we have something that's been driven by outside forces. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, because with all the positives, there's a lot of negatives people don't want to talk about. Hand it back to you, George. I, I understand why we, we, we really do want to try and uh, reduce the amount of pollution we're introducing into the to the air. There's no question at all about that. You only have to uh, drive along the side of any of the interstates, as I've been doing a lot of over the years, and you realize the damage that is done to the trees just by the, the speed at which their leaves start to fall off long before fall has even started. You can drive along an interstate in the, in the middle of summer and this, the trees at the side of the road actually look as if it's fall because they've changed color, probably due to the, my guess is, due to the pollution. Electric vehicles would help that. But my question really is, are we actually looking at the right vehicles that we should be working on. I just read something recently that pointed out that, I think it was up in Massachusetts, there was a study that was done that basically delivery vehicles, heavy, heavy vehicles, they represented something like 4% of the vehicles on the road within area up in Massachusetts, around Boston, places like that. Yet they actually contributed something like 40%, 30 to 40% of the pollution. So surely they're the ones we should be looking at. They don't need to drive 200 miles, but they do spend a lot of time moving around and sitting idling. The one advantage of an electric vehicle is that when it's idling, it's producing no, no it's not producing pollution at any one time. So you can just, it doesn't even using any energy when you stop it. But if we're going to do that, then we're going to have to rethink a lot of the infrastructure to, to support it because those vehicles will take a lot of charging power to keep them charged. Talk to MD that runs a large warehouse and has got electric forklift trucks about how much their energy bill is to keep those forklift trucks fully charged and operational. It's, yeah. it's a major level of infrastructure to be done, uh, although I think it's, it's probably a valid way to do it. I just don't think that pushing it out necessary to the subscriber is where we should be focused at this point in time. In a way, in many ways, that may be, may be doing that because that's the easier one to implement. Although Alan talks about uh, the money going, you know, government money going into research, it is the easier one to implement with less impact on the infrastructure, shall we say. You hit on a good point about the, uh, you know, the trucks. That, that's fine for local delivery trucks. It's not going to work with long-haul trucks. The trucker doesn't want to stop for several hours just to recharge his, his truck so it can go another two or 300 miles. One of the cheapest forms of transportation in this country at the moment, and that's rail. When you look at cost per mile per ton, a couple of years ago, I, I was driving along Route 66 in the Midwest and the West, and saw all these trains, diesel-powered locomotives, hauling maybe one mile, two mile worth of rail carts, and on these rail carts were trucks. Maybe we should be looking at diesel locomotives as well. If we can turn those into battery powered, they have a much more rigorous infrastructure where they pull into a rail yard and maybe they can uh, recharge there. That's an excellent point, George. But getting back to the what everybody thinks about when we talk about electric vehicles, that's the mom and pop automotive. One of the things we need to look at there is when people advertise, I was reading one the other day, a zero emission vehicle. Who are they trying to fool? 
zero emission vehicle. That means it's not doing giving any pollution, producing any carbon. Well, they forget to think about how do you charge this darn thing? Where's the power coming from? Nine times out of ten is coming from a fossil fuel power plant. The other thing about zero emissions is they forget about the fact that uh, when you're driving this electric vehicle along the highway, you're producing other pollutants. What about wear and tear on the tire? What, what about the rubber coming off the tires? You know, little things like that that, that they take, don't take into the overall formula to calculate it. The other thing they don't take into consideration is how much does it cost, not price-wise, but how much does it cost environmentally to produce this vehicle? I saw one figure that until an electric vehicle is driven uh, 20,000 miles or more, it costs more in pollutants to build that vehicle than it does to run it for 20,000 miles. So we've got to look in these other aspects. And there's some other things I'm going to hit upon in a minute that people don't consider. I want this conversation to be a little bit more positive. Me being the negative type, I'm going to hand it back again to the positive guy. Well, that's good because I was just about to pick you up on something there is that the last statistic you gave us is a perfect example of how you can use statistics to our benefit. Because in fact, what you're missing out of that is effectively 20,000 miles of pollutants that it costs to build that vehicle is also applicable to the uh, carbon fuel vehicle as well. Only it just keeps on polluting. That's the difference. I think that's a valid point as well is fossil fuels. Again, we're talking about something that they don't just appear at a gas station. They are something that has to be refined, dug up out of the ground, and then also given as well. There's something else that has to be dug up out of the ground is uh, lithium. And lithium is not a rare earth metal, but some rare earth metals. Do people take this into consideration? We're running out of supply. Can it be recycled at the moment? I'll touch on that in a minute. There's a lot of things uh, that people don't, don't take into consideration. Mechanics to repair your vehicle. 97% of mechanics in this country, licensed automotive mechanics, are not trained on working on electric vehicles. So you can say, well, electric vehicles don't need any maintenance. Of course they need maintenance. Do you need to be an electronic engineer to work on an electric vehicle? Maybe. Do you need to be a computer professional to work on an electric vehicle? Maybe. No, that's not taken into consideration. And it's not exactly as if the on every neighborhood or every corner, there's a garage equipped to work on electric vehicles. Sure, the distributors do, and sure, they make a lot of money out of it. That's one aspect we don't think about. One of the things that people talk about all the time is charging stations. People are putting in these charging stations. I drove from Connecticut last week or the other week, and uh, some of the uh, rest stops, they had these vehicles plugged into these charging stations. You know, that's 15, 30, 45, 50 minutes. Wasted on a trip that I don't want to waste. But something people don't t- doesn't talk about, that people are talking about, oh, we can put charging stations into homes. Great. I, I really admire that effort. Uh, we can put charging stations uh, along the highways. And what about the guy that lives in the center of D.C. in, in an apartment complex? Folks, these are the people that are buying electric vehicles, people that still rankled in the 60s some, in some ways. Where are they going to charge their vehicles? Is the apartment complex going to put an electric vehicle charging station in for one one for every apartment? I don't think so. Like Once again, I don't want to appear too negative, but I'm the guy that thinks outside the box. I listen to the broadcast, I read the media, and I question everything I hear. And those are really good points, Alan, actually, because we're not just talking about a product here. We're talking about an entire infrastructure change in what America currently is and what it needs to be. 
We're also talking about behavioral lifestyle changes that come with that actual infrastructure changes. You're bringing up a lot of valid points on the actual logistics of what would need to take place. And and I'm really curious, George, your thoughts on on some of those different aspects, because, you know, currently right now you can have a a semi-trailer bring a load of fossil fuel to a gas station, and then that is somewhat separated from the electrical energy grid. That's separate from my home. Now we're talking about completely changing my interaction with where the energy comes from charging my car to now it's the same energy that's providing power to my home, to my fridge from our electrical utility and how that can be impacted if electrical utility is overloaded. What are your thoughts there as far as how that's going to change our lifestyle and and what needs to be changed there? What you're saying, Andrew, is very valid, but I'll I'll pick up one thing that uh, just before we talk about that, I'll pick up something that Alan was talking about, Uh, you know, the difference, where where are you going to get your vehicle charged? I will be honest with you, if there's anything that was to put me off electric vehicles, although it might have forced me to look at it the other way and buy one, is that when I park at any of the airports, the areas closest to the exit and the shortest walk from from the car park to the terminal these spaces are all now have chargers in them for electric vehicles. So they're no longer available to me to park in, you know, and I, I actually think that's wrong because theoretically, if you were to do the environmental thought correctly, they should be at the furthest end of the car park because of the amount of energy I use and the amount of noxious fumes I produce simply driving around trying to find a parking space. You know, it would be much easier if you could you park your heaviest uh, use vehicle as close to the entrance as possible. Anyway, that's just a personal whim. No, I come back to this this whole study of the infrastructure. In many ways, in that sense, Alan is absolutely right. In the end, the energy we are going to produce to charge these vehicles has to come from someplace. And the one thing that is completely missing in all these arguments for solar and wind as our primary source of power fail to understand the weather. It doesn't always shine sunny. Some places it does, some places it doesn't. Other places it doesn't always blow wind. They're not consistent. They are an excellent method of topping up. They are not a good method of producing that baseline power that we require in order to produce that power that we need for our everyday living resources. You charge it at home, but they control when you charge it. What's the first time that somebody has a pregnant wife and they've just come home and parked their car in the garage and they've been home for a couple of hours and she starts in labor and they want to take her to the hospital, but they haven't turned the charger on yet because it's not at the uh, low, low time to do the charging. Will that become a court case? I don't know. It's but you're right in the sense that there's a, a lot of other things have to go into this. Not least of being, how do we get rid of the other part of the waste that nobody wants to talk about, which are the batteries themselves? There are companies that are trying very hard to recycle lithium. It's not a standard process at the present moment. We recycle something like ninety-six percent of all lead acid batteries. But we don't do any, we can't at the present moment, any volume recycling of those. So one of the ideas has been that we would take these uh, vehicle batteries that can no longer support 200 miles of duration, but still have basically energy within them. They, maybe they could be used for energy storage within the uh, within the grid. 
if you know the history of grid storage, battery storage within the grid, it's not that it's not that good in some cases. Fires are quite common, more common than they want you people would like you to think about. Now, those fires are occurring in brand new batteries with theoretically good control systems. Would I feel happy about using secondhand batteries under those conditions? You don't go and buy a secondhand battery. You always buy a new one because you want the best there is at the time. These things are all things that are going to have to be worked out, but they're not going to be worked out by people that are totally against it and people that are 100% for it. It's going to take a lot of common sense in between to do it. I like the idea. In fact, I would love to have a high-performance electric car because I've always liked fast cars. I used to do rally driving when I was much younger, and I'd love to get a chance to try some of those electric ones because their their response is so amazing. But there again, that might also be a, an additional uh, problem that if you give a, an electric car to somebody that is an experienced driver, they may all kill themselves in the process. We're trying to look at every aspect of electric cars at the present moment. George was a rally driver, and uh, I've lived that several times recently, uh, driving down I-81 or I-95 with George. This is hot off the press. I read this last night from one of the newsletters I get, uh, and it says lithium-ion battery recycling firm uh, Lifecycle, they're a Canadian company, announced a hundred million, that's a one hundred million investment from the Coke Investment Group. They're an investment partner subsidiary of uh, the well-known fossil fuel giant Coke Industries. That's a lot of money to be throwing at something, but recycling. They're looking at that seriously. They have to solve this problem. Aqua Metals, who have a very unique uh, recycling process, cold recycling process, they're not a smelter. They've signed an agreement with some other companies to come up with a, a system of recycling lithium-ion batteries, or lithium chemistry batteries, shall I say. They're scrambling to try and find a fix. So recycling has been taken care of. But just a couple of quick examples here. George talked about rally driving. One of my favorite motorsports is Formula One racing. I'm not a big NASCAR fan, I guess. A quote at one time is saying NASCARs is for those who don't get the WWF. They come out with this, what they call Formula E, Formula Electric. They do have a circuit, just like a Formula One circuit. But there was a recent race in, uh, I believe it was Spain, maybe Portugal, in which not one car finished the race because they all ran out of battery power. Because what they hadn't really figured into things, uh, there was a lot of caution flags during the race, yellow flags. Cars have to go around the circuit under a caution flag uh, following a pace car. So there's too many cautions in this race. So by the time it came to the final laps, all the cars had run out of battery power. This got me thinking. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. Washington, D.C. has a what we call the Beltway. It's been quoted as one of the world's largest parking lots. Usually about once or twice a week, there's an accident. So I'm just imagining, well, you have an accident on the Washington Beltway. Middle of winter, snow, ice everywhere. So you're sitting there in your electric vehicle. You're not going anywhere. So what do you do? Turn it off? Fine. What produces the heat? What produces the defoggers? What produces light in an electric vehicle? It's that battery. And that battery hasn't been taken into consideration. This happened to my a friend of my daughter's, recently they were driving uh, in the northeast rainstorm we had a couple of weeks ago, and they were stuck for eight hours on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in their vehicle. Glad it wasn't an electric vehicle because it's not the miles that's burning up the battery. In this case, it's the auxiliary items. Not a lot of people talk about that. The other thing is that they don't talk about it, is the resale value of a vehicle. 
typical figure for the Prius about 10 years ago was that uh, the battery was good for about five years. The battery was also 40% of the cost. Typical American vehicle owner owns it for five to seven years. So here you have a five-year-old, six-year-old vehicle that you're trying to put into the second-hand market. Am I going to buy that vehicle even at a bargain price? No. Why? Because I've got to pay for a new battery for it. Nobody's even looked at the second-hand resale value mark of electric vehicles. So I'd like to see a study on that. Having finished that rant, I'll hand it over to my fellow ranter, Mr. P. What has come out of this conversation is that there is a place for electric vehicles, definitely, especially on the uh, heavy industrial side. They could really bring a reduction in um, pollutants in an area that it's probably most effective, like cities and heavily built up areas that could be a major advantage but to do that we are going to have to have a very close look at the infrastructure that goes in to support that and where will that all come from how will how will that be handled i'm not sure that we are focusing on the correct areas with respect to electric vehicles i would rather see it focused on these delivery vehicles Let's go. Let's go back to our milk delivery cart back in um, in my childhood, which is a long time ago. I admit. Why was it electric when they when they replaced the horses? Simply because they didn't want to wake people up because they were delivering milk in the early hours of the morning. Maybe we need to be looking at it and saying, okay, everything, every delivery truck has got to move over to being electric because we don't want them polluting as much as they do. Because remember, a lot of these vehicles are diesels, which are not known for being the cleanest vehicles in the world. I know that you uh, they get better fuel economy and all the rest, and, uh, but just look what happened with Volkswagen trying to meet standards of emissions. I want to see some balance into this argument and uh, get rid of this extreme, one extreme or the other. We are not going to be able to support our basic uh, electrical needs with wind or solar. And likewise, we are not going to be able to move all our transportation needs over to electric. We've got to get a balance. I'd like to conclude with a word of caution, and then I've got a question. A word of caution is, when you look at the advertised vehicle mileage range, it's just like your gas or diesel vehicle. You give you the optimum figures of city mileage or highway mileage. With electric vehicle, there's something else that comes into the consideration, and that's temperature. You have a battery here that probably is temperature dependent. It's calculated at peak performance, 25 degrees C. What happens when you're driving at 40 degrees C? Tell you what happens, your mileage range goes down significantly by probably about 40%. But my question I want to leave everybody is, how do you jumpstart an electric vehicle? Yeah, you got a big battery. I can just imagine a, a friendly Triple uh, H trucks traveling around hauling a camper-sized battery behind them so that they can jumpstart all the vehicles uh, that have run out of fuel along the interstate. I think you guys brought up a lot of interesting points. That there's always two sides to every conversation, and neither one is wrong. I think there's a lot of valid points. There's a lot of changes in the infrastructure. There's a lot of changes in lifestyles that are going to have to take place and be considered as we move forward and as electric vehicles become more of our life. So thanks again, guys. Uh, appreciate the time. It's a, It was a very interesting conversation, and I think this one is going to have a lot of feedback uh, from our customers and our clients uh, once they get a peek of it and get to hear and, and hear the thoughts and think a little bit more about it.
So thanks again, guys. Today, we're excited to be joined by Jeff Springer, Manager of Innovation and Efficient Electrification for Dairyland Power Cooperative. Andrew, take it away. Jeff, how are you? Great. So today we're talking pretty much all things EV and the electrical grid. So if you don't mind, uh, just giving us a little background about yourself so the audience knows who and, and what you do. Sure. I work for Dairyland Power Cooperative, and we serve four states, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, but mostly in the rural areas. My primary job over the 30-year career has been efficient electrification, so working with our members on the best use of electricity. And about seven years ago, we got involved in a project to do fleet electrification at our own fleet and started in doing that with plug-in hybrid cars and have since evolved to where we're promoting electrification of transportation in our service area and working with our member cooperatives on that. Does that program have a name here in Wisconsin? Our cooperatives got together and formed an organization called CHARGE, which is fairly literal, but it uh, does really capture what we're trying to do. It's provide charging infrastructure both in people's homes and uh, in rural areas uh, where public charging is needed but uh, no one else seems to be building any. That sounds to be quite an, an innovative group for the fact that from the sounds of it, you guys would be providing the in-home chargers for paying customers as well as building out charging infrastructure for on the road. That's right. Yep. We're, we're doing some of both. The in-home one, just so people realize what the paradigm shift is going to be, this is something that's lost on a lot of people, is, is the one that 80% of the charging will be done at home. So unlike today, where you go to a gas station to fill up your car, uh, you'll be doing most of your fill-ups in your home with an electric car. That's really attractive to us because we can shift that or manage that load into times when we have valleys, when we have uh, excess electric production, uh, particularly at night when we have abundant wind energy. So it's a, a win-win because uh, you can get uh, more green energy into the cars and we can fill a valley during a time when we have excess energy generation. That's an interesting viewpoint because some things that I've always heard about the industry is our infrastructure is so aging, it is so old, and it's at its tipping point already. What are we going to do if the whole American fleet goes to electric vehicles we're never going to be able to handle it. There's so much building that has to be done. But from what you're saying, it's almost a managerial point from you guys of, hey, we're going to provide this charger at home and you guys can charge during non-peak hours. How would you guys actually get buy-in from the customer on that? So usually there's some kind of a carrot, something with a special rate to do that, maybe a monthly credit or something like that. There's some sort of a carrot to get folks to want to shift their charging. The other thing is we make it totally transparent for them. So we're using managed chargers that can actually, uh, you can come home at five o'clock and plug your car in and uh, walk away knowing that it'll be charged the next morning, but it won't start charging until nine o'clock at night. We're controlling that. And then it'll be finished uh, by morning and your car will be full and you'll be ready to go again. That's great. And I think we'll circle back to being plugged in at home and talk about if there's a potential for feedback from those EVs onto the grid. But I wanted to first switch over to the charging stations. Is that something that your cooperative is building out new stations? Are you adding those to existing areas where you already have substations and generation, or you guys have a full-fledged plan to kind of build out the power infrastructure there for those various charging stations? 
for the most part, we're careful about where we select to put a charging station. There's a couple of attributes you want. One is the power supply, as you mentioned, and another is something that the consumer can do while they're waiting for their car to charge, because it does take if you have one that's completely empty, it might be 30 minutes to an hour, even at a fast charging station. So usually we locate them near a restaurant or something like that, where there's something else for you to do. So you can stop and grab lunch while you're charging your car. By the time you get done eating, your car will be fully charged. Again, it's different than gasoline fueling, where when you're fueling your car, you don't want to walk away from it because that's a dangerous situation. But when you're charging at a fast charger, you plug in and you walk away and you come back uh, when the car's done charging. So it can safely be left while you're doing whatever other thing that you activity that you need to do while you stop. And for that, obviously, most of the traffic you're going to get there is probably during peak hours at, at those charging stations. So are you guys looking to, and some of that might be proprietary, but are you looking to build something similar to like Tesla where they're doing a kilowatt hour rate uh, that you would charge per those or what kind of uh, infrastructure are you thinking there? There is a charge for charging and sometimes it's based on kilowatt hour and sometimes it's based on per minute. Sort of depends on the state you're in. Uh, different states have different rules around that. We're cognizant of the fact that we can't control fast chargers, right? Because when someone shows up at a fast charger, they want to charge their car right then. They don't want to wait. And so we're looking to the diversity across our system. So when we have these spread across a large area, the odds that all of them will be charging at the same time are fairly low, at least right now. As uh, more and more people start driving electric cars, that may change. Um, and then, you know, maybe some more transmission infrastructure and so forth is going to be needed. But so far, the only thing that we've needed to add from an infrastructure standpoint is local. So these all run at 480 volts, the fast chargers do. And not too many of our services are there. Most of them are 120, 208, three phase instead of uh, 480, 277. And so we end up putting in a 480 volt transformer to serve them. But we haven't added any substations and we don't anticipate doing that anytime soon. I know you said about 80% was going to come from the home and 20% you guys are estimating from these fast charging ports. For those fast charging points, are you guys making those compliant with multiple vendors uh, EVs, because I know, for example, there's people like Tesla that are, seem to be building their entire own network. Are you guys working with those various different car manufacturers to build a product and a solution that there's not anxiety because I purchased a Nissan versus a Tesla that I'm going to be able to, to charge when I pass through Dairyland Power's coverage area? You've called out the two that have the uh, sort of uh, non-standard charging protocols, if you will, Nissan and Tesla. And Tesla has built out their own network. Interestingly, in Europe, the Teslas that go there have the CCS connector on them. So the European Union has mandated that you have to provide a CCS connector on your vehicles and at your charging stations. So Tesla's already made the change in Europe. Uh, Elon Musk has hinted that that change may be coming in the United States as well. We're not exactly sure how they would implement that, but there are some adapters available that go from the Nissan standard, which is Chatamo, to the Tesla. So there is an adapter available that you can take a Chatamo connector and convert it to Tesla. And then there's CCS, which is the combined charging standard. And that's what everybody else in the world uses. All the American car makers, all the European car makers uh, put a CCS connector on their cars. Interestingly, Nissan, who has been using Chatamo, has said that their next car that's coming to the United States, the Aria, will come with a CCS connector. So it sort of seems like that's going to change. Now, to your question, do we provide for all of that? 
Well, we provide for the CHAdeMO and the CCS at all of our fast charging stations. Um, that's pretty standard. I think that will change over time where as the, the older Nissans kind of fade away, uh, it may just be standard CCS at, at charging stations, but that's a ways into the future. And then, as you mentioned, Tesla does their own charging network. Uh, we do serve some of those charging stations uh, on our lines but it's not something that we build out. If you have a Tesla and you want to charge it one of ours, you need to have that adapter that Tesla sells, which converts from Chatamo to Tesla. So it looks like there is some integration happening now. And as soon as everyone standardizes across the United States, as the popularity grows, that wouldn't even be an issue to use any of those charging stations. That kind of leads me on those charging stations themselves. Currently, I know a lot of the portfolio is likely natural gas and coal production powering those those various different charging ports. Do you guys have any plans for the future of how you're going to tie EVs and renewables together? Are you hoping that those charging stations are going to be powered by solar, wind, and some of those various aspects as you plan out some of these charging stations, especially here in the Midwest where we do have a good abundance of wind energy. Are we hoping to tie that in together? I don't think we envision specifically linking uh, solar and wind to, as we build out more and more renewables, naturally more and more of the energy that's going into those cars will be renewable energy. And as I mentioned, for our nighttime charging of EVs, one of the abundant resources at night is wind energy. So uh, we are sort of trying to funnel it that way. We can get into the other sort of subject of renewable energy credits, and you can actually nominate credits and move renewable energy specifically to a load. And we do have some folks that are doing that with some of their charging stations. So they're basically saying, we're going to nominate renewable energy from a solar site or a wind site and make sure that that energy goes there. Now, that's not physically delivering the electrons from the solar site. It's just saying, okay, we're going to take the green uh, portion of those electrons and uh, sort of allocate it to that charging station. Is that program the Evergreen program from Dairyland? In Dairyland's case, yes, it's called Evergreen. Yep, that's exactly right. Our members can participate in that for a variety of different things. You can do the energy at your home from renewable energy if you want to. We have commercial customers that do the Evergreen. Uh, a lot of our cooperatives actually power their buildings with renewable energy that way. Dairyland's program is called Evergreen, but the backstop for that or the uh, sort of certification agency is the MRETS, the Midwest Renewable Energy Tracking System. And that's something that uh, utilities in the Midwest use to sort of make sure that that's on the up and up and that uh, you don't double count any energy that's generated from renewable sources. I've seen those programs before where a lot of it is, it's not just a feel-good thing. It's helping to fund and work our way towards actually building that infrastructure out. As we all know, we want to get to full renewables of what that's going to look like in the future, I think is still to be determined. But I know that's a big goal, especially when it comes to EVs, because that's from what I've I've seen across the industry, always been a big knock on them is still being charged by all the fossil fuels. So they're not really as clean as we all want to pretend they are. But I think the benefits are there. I did want to go back to the at-home charging since it seems to be such a big part of where you guys see the actual energy use of the future. I just had a few questions when you were going over that. Specifically, are you guys partnered with specific chargers that you're then selling to the customers or do the customers have an option on the market of, hey, here's our recommended or how does that program actually go into play? 
So we have worked with Zeph Energy, who's a, a Midwest manufacturer of smart chargers. They basically build a smart board that goes in the Clipper Creek charger. And Clipper Creek's one of the biggest builders of EV chargers in the United States. And that smart charger then is our preferred solution. We can work with customers on other chargers, but it's a lot more complicated because we have to add a meter and so on and so forth. Whereas the smart charger that we're getting from Zeph has revenue grade metering built right into the charger. So it simplifies things dramatically, lowers the cost considerably, and we do subsidize those a little bit to make that attractive to our members so that they choose uh, the smart charger that we're offering. Charges exactly the same way as any other charger on the market. And we have a variety of different capacities available from the 7KW all the way up to the 15.3. We don't have the 19KW one available yet, but we probably will in the future. That's only a couple of cars that are coming that have that sort of super fast home charging. My charging, I do at 7KW and I'm still able to charge overnight, even if I've driven 200 miles during the day. So you can actually get the 200 miles back in an overnight charge? Yeah. So a 7KW charger adds about 20 miles of range per hour of charging. So 10 hours gives me my 200 miles back. That's not a problem at all. Are you guys going in and changing any electrical at the customer site or does the customer need to put in special 240 plugs and wiring to accommodate these chargers or are these 120 based charging systems? No, they're 240 volts. To get to 7KW, you have to have 240 volts. Um, Some people are lucky and their garage already has 240 volts and it's an easy thing for an electrician to just hook them up. Ours are hardwired, not plug connected. You can get plug connected chargers, but ours are hardwired. It's usually not that expensive, but if you don't have 240 in your garage, yeah, then it makes it a little more difficult. Something that's changing is as people are building new homes, we're encouraging them to, even if they don't own an EV, to think towards the future and put enough capacity into that garage so that it makes it easier. It's always easier to build it in from the start than it is to, to do it after the fact. And we do have one cooperative who's worked with a builder to make all of the homes in a development that they're doing EV ready. So they're installing the charger as they build the home. And uh, those folks move into the homes and they're like, huh, we could have an electric car because we've already got a charger here in the garage. That is a really good point. You know, there's a lot of folks out there that definitely do not have electricity in the garage, do not have 240 in the garage. So I think there's a lot of different things that are from the residential side going to have to change over the coming decades to actually accommodate those chargers. And and I know like, uh, for example, Tesla has kind of marketed their 120 volt and, and you get about 20 or 30 miles charge overnight, roughly a little bit more than that sometimes. So there is other options out there for those those folks, but there is an additional cost to actually move over to that right now to build out, to have an electrician come in and do the 240 to hardwire this. Before we let you go here, I know we're running a little short on time. So what are your views on the increasing EV fleet. Do you guys see this exponentially growing over the next five, 10 years? Or what are your kind of conservative estimations for where you see the fleet growth and how it's going to impact um, Dairyland's powers initiatives moving forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. If I could get my arms around that, I'd probably be uh, sitting somewhere on a yacht, right? If I had that kind of uh, foresight. It is expected that we will see a hockey stick at some point. The growth of EVs has been relatively slow up until this point, but we do anticipate it taking off and probably going something like exponential. One of the things that will probably change that is pickup trucks. 
We saw just last week, I think, that first Rivians started shipping. Next year, we'll be seeing F-150s shipping. Before the end of this year, we'll be seeing the Hummer truck shipping. That's huge in the rural areas because if you have anything to drive, you have a pickup truck for sure if you live in the rural areas, right? So we'll see a lot of uh, increased adoption. There's been question about, well, how will consumers embrace an electric truck? But Ford has doubled what they plan to produce on the F-150 Lightning because the interest has been so strong. Rivian is sold out for two years on their production. I do think that the consumer interest is there. Of course, they're building in cool capabilities to these trucks, and that helps too. It's not just electric. It's got other features that make it uh, really unique and capable as well. So we're feeling like we're pretty well positioned for the next five years uh, without having to add much in the way of infrastructure. When we get to heavy-duty fleet, That's another animal. They talk about a charging standard there of a megawatt. Each of those trucks would draw 1,000 kW when it connects to charge. So if you have a truck stop that has 10 charging bays there, you have potentially a 10 megawatt load. That's a big deal, and that's a big change and something we as the industry, not just Dairyland, We'll have to plan around and and, uh, see how we serve that. Absolutely. And I think different packages from the federal government and infrastructure design bills are what would be needed there. Uh, A co-op such as yourself or even a state is going to have a hard time kind of building out an infrastructure that can handle that type of increase and complete change in the way that our shipping industry works and our transportation industry works. I know you did mention that uh, you had your own EV. Is that what got you into this or is that just a byproduct of doing this for so long that you just saw it there that that was the value? A little of both. I was driving some of Dairyland's fleet cars, the plug-in hybrid. And the fun part about driving those was when they were on all electric. And then I bought a uh, plug-in hybrid Mitsubishi Outlander, which was all-wheel drive and had 25 miles of range or whatever. And my thought was that would be a bridge car, that eventually there would be an electric car that would come. And it was a 2018. And I thought, you know, maybe four or five years, there'll be an electric car that'll come along that's attractive. And I'll say, yeah, I want to do that. And it had to meet certain criteria. It had to have a long range, had to be all wheel drive, have four doors and have some decent space in it. And Ford came along with the Mustang Mach-E. And I was struck by that. It's like, wow, that one meets all the criteria. But I've only owned the Mitsubishi for a couple of years. Should I really jump for this or not? And in the end, I did. I pre-ordered one. And uh, 18 months later, it showed up before a lot of the demo ones showed up to the dealers. And I have been loving it. It is so fun to drive and has a great range. And uh, my charging has been over 90% at home. Even though I've traveled 5,000 miles with it, 95% of the time I'm charging at home. I make a, an art of that, you know, so when I stop at a fast charger, I only take on what I need to get the rest of the way home. I'm kind of like a kid with $5 of gas money in his pocket. It's just going to get enough to get home and then dad can refill, right? But in my case, it's uh, me refilling it with the home charging, which is my most economical source. That's a really valid point. And it's something that I think a lot of people will utilize those chargers for. It's not the idea of I'm going to go there and I'm going to completely top up my car unless it is I'm doing a road trip across the country. Then the value there is extreme. But for your daily users, maybe you're doing a couple hundred miles of, of range Uh, within the state on your commute and you just stop in, top off, make sure you have enough and then get home, charge the rest of the way. So those are valuable points. It's a good way of looking at it that I don't think myself or Dave were previously looking at 
how charging was going to take place and the infrastructure that was going to be needed. I thank you for your time. Any last words before you go, Jeff? We've taken enough of your time, but just one thing for your your wonky audience who you know knows the DC and the AC things a little bit. We've been calling the ones in the home chargers. And the home chargers really aren't chargers at all. They're just an AC power supply device, the actual rectifiers in the car. And when we DC fast charge, we are providing DC to the car. So just to be clear, the home chargers are electric vehicle supply equipment. EVSE is the technical term. And all they really do is provide some safety features. So they make sure that uh, there's no leakage. So there's a ground fault interrupter circuit in it. And they make sure that there's no power flowing until the plug is connected and the car has had a handshake with the charger. So a lot of safety features built in there, but really they're just providing AC power to the car and then the car is rectifying that into DC to charge the battery pack. Whereas the DC fast chargers, of course, we're providing high voltage, high current DC there to do that. So that's why the, the home chargers are so inexpensive and those fast chargers are a really expensive investment for folks. That's a great distinction there. So I think we could probably keep asking you questions all day long, but I know that you got a busy schedule ahead of you. So we'll let you go. And, and thanks so much for stopping by the podcast, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff. Sure. Happy to do it. Uh, we'll put some information on our website as well. So people can uh, take a look at uh, what you're doing over at Dairyland Power. I think it's really fascinating. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of DC Power Hour. I hope you enjoyed the different spirited perspectives shared by really both sides of the argument about electrical vehicles. I know I really appreciated it and so did our guests. So thanks to everyone who contributed and hope that uh, you got a lot out of it as an audience. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out and let us know and we'll try and incorporate it into an upcoming episode. In the meantime, join us next time when we'll discuss a number of industry disruptors. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.